traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The global discussion about racism sparked by George Floyd's murder in America has made its way around the world, including to the Middle East, where many countries have black minority populations, each of which faces discrimination and worse. And the solution to a 150-year-old mystery, a plague of bugs wiped out most of Europe's vineyards in the 1860s, but it was never clear how they made their way to the continent. Until now. First up, though. The squeeze on political freedoms in Hong Kong is ramping up, and fast. On Friday, the territory's chief executive, Carrie Lam, announced that September's planned elections would be postponed for a year. In the past seven months, I've always had to make difficult decisions. But then the announcement I have to make today is the most difficult decision that I have to make in the past seven months. Mrs. Lam insisted the delay was only to avoid the spread of COVID-19. The decision to postpone the 2020 electoral election has nothing to do with politics, has nothing to do with the likely outcome of this round of elections. But pro-democracy parties had hoped for success in the poll, riding a wave of discontent at Beijing's recent imposition of a sweeping national security law. The legislation broadly defines and harshly punishes subversion, sedition, or collusion with foreigners. Nathan Law, one of Hong Kong's most prominent pro-democracy activists, recently spoke with our sister podcast, The Economist Asks. Well, I think the support for Hong Kong's democratic movement is still really strong. Though there have been protests against the new law, the millions of people who once surged onto the streets have largely stayed home as police have cracked down harder. Just try to imagine if you live in a country or in a place that there is no freedom of expression, freedom of demonstration, or even freedom of thoughts then definitely, like, protest does not exist or will be largely quashed. Earlier last week, 12 pro-democracy candidates were banned from running whenever the elections happen. And on Saturday, Hong Kong's police issued arrest warrants for six political activists living in exile in the West. Since the promulgation of the national security law on July the 1st, uh, the scope for political expression has been very much narrowed. Dominic Ziegler writes Banyan, our column on Asian affairs. And um, because of that, there haven't been any street protests uh, of any size since July the 1st because of the consequences um, for those taking part. But nevertheless, there has been widespread concern about postponing the election by a year. The Bar Association, uh, representing um, senior barristers and uh, other lawyers in the territory, 
has expressed what it called grave concern. And it said that, you know, a decision to postpone September's elections for the Legislative Council, which is known as LegCo, was undermining a vital constitutional right. And so what does that mean in practice? What happens with the, the, the sitting lawmakers? There are all sorts of implications about what it means in practice, because hitherto Hong Kong law has been very clear. So you have to hold elections for this quasi-democratic legislature every four years. So the government of Carrie Lam, the chief executive, is in a bit of a pickle about how it justifies this. Although she said that it was for reasons of the pandemic, several other jurisdictions have been able to carry out elections, and that, and that includes recently elections in Singapore. There are certainly suspicions that the decision was taken not because of uh, the pandemic, but because Democrats had a good chance, in fact, of gaining for the first time a majority in this rather gerrymandered council. And uh, indeed, even obstructing uh, government policy or criticising the government has, it has been suggested by the authorities, uh, the risk of falling foul of the new national security law. So this decision is absolutely shot through with politics. But nevertheless, it's going to take some finessing by the government uh, to show that the move is legitimate. The chances are uh, that how it will manage that is to get a ruling from on high, from Beijing, saying that this is the appropriate course. And it's worth bearing in mind that Beijing has always, since Hong Kong's return to China, has always had the authority to intervene in Hong Kong's affairs. The understanding would, would be that this would happen only rarely. But in the last few weeks, we've seen it happening time and time again. And I think this is going to be the practice for the future. But what about the, the, the candidates who were banned from running here? Is, is there a risk that, that Beijing will start to essentially stack the LegCo with, with, with loyalists there in this interim year? Uh, there certainly is a risk, Jason. I mean, the, bear in mind that all the moves around uh, LegCo have been made in order to ensure that the pro-democratic camp does not secure a majority in the legislature. Now, early last week, the authorities did this by disqualifying a dozen or so candidates, claiming that even for criticising the national security law, that gave the government grounds for not allowing them to run. Now, a few of the dozen candidates actually sit in the current legislative council. So one big question that the authorities uh, have to find an answer to is whether those four legislators continue to sit in a, a, a council whose session is now, is now being extended by a year. The chances are that the government will find means to disqualify uh, those four. And Beijing's moves go further than that recently. They're, they're speaking of uh, arresting pro-democracy activists outside of the territory, which is also unusual. That's right. Quite a lot has happened in the past week. On July the 29th, four students were detained for supposedly inciting secession. This seems to have had something to do with a, with a Facebook page. Uh, and then shortly after, it became clear that the police had put on a wanted list a number of activists who are currently in exile. Um, so there is an example, for instance, of how China intends for this new national security law to have jurisdiction beyond uh, the borders of the country itself. These people were in the United States, the UK and elsewhere. Uh, one of them was not even a, a Hong Kong citizen, but had taken up US, US citizenship. And so as, as Beijing's hands gets ever heavier in Hong Kong and, well, indeed, uh, all over the world, how are people coping? Normal life goes on so far as both the coronavirus and the new political restrictions allow. What has certainly happened is that the street protests that uh, so coloured and roiled the territory last year are now very much a thing of the past. 
So the angst, the concern, the worry that uh, has taken hold in the territory is one that is not always voiced publicly, um, but in private conversations. And the concerns really are about Hong Kong's long-term future. One of the possibilities, certainly, that many people are discussing is, is emigration. And a number of countries have offered routes towards long-term permanent residency or even citizenship. And those countries include um, the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, the United States. Um, but many people are not in a position to leave immediately. But what happens now with all of the momentum that was behind the protesters, but there's a whole movement now that uh, protests themselves have died down, the, the protesters are, are moving abroad. What happens now? It, it looks like well over half of Hong Kong's population is in favour of democratic change. But the possibilities for that through politics and through the ballot box have been very sharply restricted in, in recent weeks. So there's a conversation emerging about what form opposition should take. So people are starting to draw parallels with the Eastern European bloc during the Soviet era. To many people here, the national security law is starting to look like the very quick building of the Berlin Wall in the early 1960s. And people are drawing comparisons with opposition in the decades following that in Eastern Europe. And that opposition took the form of underground dissidents. It took the form of dissident writers. I mean, the church played a big role in Eastern Europe. Some hope that it may do here in Hong Kong. One positive sign that has been taken from last year's protests was an extraordinary outburst of creativity in, in the form of protest art, in the form of uh, video making. So the hope is that maybe these avenues might at least allow a civil society not only to, to hang on by its fingertips, but also to grow. Dom, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. For an insightful pair of interviews about Hong Kong's politics, look for our sister show, The Economist Asks. My colleague Anne McElvoy spoke to activist Nathan Law and to Regina Ip, a pro-Beijing member of Hong Kong's cabinet, who said it's the activists themselves who bear responsibility for the mainland's latest moves. It's their choice. They have uh, gone on the primrose path to self-destruction. You know, it's their choice to want to promote uh, separatism uh, from China. I feel sorry for them. All the problems that they face now are of their own doing. You know, in fact, they are too young. They are too young to make judgments on these fundamental issues. Why should they be involved in promoting separation from China? Why should they do that? Look for The Economist Asks wherever you find your podcasts. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. America's recent protests against racism and police brutality have drawn much interest in the Middle East. Some people have reacted with shock, some with schadenfreude. For others, though, America's unrest was an opportunity to discuss the problems with race in their own countries. Most Arab states have a black minority, each of which faces its own discrimination. 
The worst treatment, though, is reserved for migrants. There was a scene that played out almost every day for weeks, for months, outside of the Ethiopian embassy here in Beirut. You would see cars pull up and drop off their passengers, uh, Ethiopian women who were carrying their possessions in suitcases or in bags. Greg Karlstrom is our Middle East correspondent, based in Lebanon. These weren't women catching a plane or catching a train. They had nowhere to go, actually. These were maids, domestic workers, whose employers could no longer afford to pay them because of the economic crisis here in Lebanon. Also couldn't send them home because the airport was largely closed because of COVID-19. And so they, they dumped them off outside the embassy. They simply left them there to be someone else's problem. You would meet women who said they'd been sitting there on the curb for days on end, using their bags as pillows, simply left to fend for themselves. And is that kind of a general comment on how Lebanon treats its migrant domestic workers? It is. Even before COVID-19, before the economic crisis, there was widespread racism and harsh treatment of migrant workers here. There have been a number of cases where Lebanese have advertised their maids on Facebook as if they were property. There was a post back in April that offered a Nigerian maid who was described as being very active and very clean. And she was being sold for one and a half million Lebanese pounds, which was worth about $1,000 at the official exchange rate. There was also a clip that was circulated widely here in Lebanon in June. It was from a television channel in Ghana that covered the return of 200 or so Ghanaian citizens from Lebanon. Most of them, about 180 of them, were women working as domestic workers here. And they described horrendous conditions and treatment. They don't even pay us after that sexually harassment. They beat us like animals. I have videos of the things I went through in that country. And they also warned uh, other people not to follow them to Lebanon, not to come here to work. No one should make that mistake and go back to Lebanon. It's not a country that we should be. But how does this situation come about where, for instance, Ghanaian people find themselves trapped with arguably abusive employers? It often starts with unscrupulous uh, recruiters or agents. Uh, Migrants who come here and to other countries in the Middle East are often promised good salaries, respectful working conditions, and then they arrive and find out that it's anything but. But then they find themselves trapped for two reasons. One is they often have to take out loans to pay fees to these recruiters, and the loans can run $1,000, $2,000, which when you're making only a few hundred dollars a month and you're trying to send much of that to your families back home, Uh, It can take many months, if not years, to pay off those loans. So they find themselves trapped by debt. They also find themselves trapped by something called the kafala system, which again exists here in Lebanon and in many other countries in the Middle East, whereby migrant workers are bound to their kafil or their sponsor. And so they can't simply change jobs because their residency and their work permit is connected to their sponsor. And if they leave that job, they have to leave the country. So you meet migrants who say, despite the awful conditions, They're making more money here than they would make back home. And so they're willing to uh, or they're forced to continue to put up with those conditions because they're blocked from finding another job. And so all of this is a function of how the Lebanese feel about migrants or is this strictly a a racial thing? It's hard to separate the two because almost all of the migrants here are either from East and South Asia or from Africa. So uh, it's often connected to race as well as their status being migrant workers. But the racism here, it, it cuts across socioeconomic lines. I spoke with a black diplomat who says she's been pursued through upscale shopping malls in Lebanon by security guards who thought she was a housekeeper and they wanted to know why she was shopping without her madame, without her employer. Uh, So race is certainly a problem here and in other countries around the Middle East. And not only when it comes to migrants, uh, states across the Arab world have black minorities. 
You have in Egypt, for example, the Nubians uh, who have been there for thousands of years. You have in the Levant and in the Gulf states, uh, black communities that are often the descendants of slaves taken by Islamic empires or the descendants of African Muslims who made pilgrimages to places like Saudi Arabia and decided to stay. Uh, again, those communities face various kinds of discrimination as well. What do you mean by that? Well, you hear some of it simply in the language that people use. Uh, Darker-skinned people are referred to with terms like abd, which means slave. Anwar Sadat, who was uh, president of Egypt, uh, darker-skinned than his predecessor, was sometimes referred to as his predecessor's black poodle. You turn on the television in the Middle East, and blackface is a fairly common sight on Arabic-language television. And, and no doubt that kind of racism manifests in, in everyday life in lots of ways. It does. You see it in areas of life like marriage, a choice of partner. Uh, you have families that will see skin color as a marker for socioeconomic status, uh, lighter skinned people seen as being wealthier, more educated. Uh, you see it in the workplace as well. In Iraq, for example, where there's a black community that has been there for at least a thousand years, they to this day struggle to obtain government jobs and they're often relegated to doing menial work and living on the outskirts of society. You see it as well in the Gulf states where there's almost a, a racial hierarchy to employment. Uh, if you walk into a nice hotel in the Gulf, you might see black migrants from Africa working as security guards or as porters. You will see them far less often in jobs that require interaction with customers. So waiters, hairdressers, things like that. Those jobs which are better paid and less taxing often go to lighter skinned workers from Asia or from Arab countries. I mean, racism has been very much on the agenda over the past few months because of the, the killing of George Floyd and the protests that erupted across the world. Did that wave of protests hit the Arab world as well? The protests themselves didn't reach the Arab world. Uh, this is a region, uh, unfortunately, where protest is often a criminal offense. So we didn't see much in the way of street demonstrations, either in solidarity or around the region's own issues with racism. But it has certainly escalated the conversation that's taking place both online and offline. There was a video that circulated quite widely earlier this summer. It was shot by a black Palestinian actress, Mariana Bukhalid, uh, who recounted some of the just casual bigotry that she's heard in day-to-day -day life. People often argue that it's harmless, it's just words. But one of the points that she was trying to make in this video is that it does hurt people and that it does have an influence not only on the targets of it, but on society's broader attitude towards black Arabs. And do you think having these kinds of discussions on social media and the like will make much of a difference? Is it enough? Having a conversation about these things is certainly better than nothing. But one thing that we've seen, certainly in America, through years and years and years of protests against racism and police brutality, uh, is that just having a conversation doesn't actually bring political change or social change. That's something that takes a long time, and it also takes concerted effort in politics and education. And unfortunately, one of the problems in countries across this region uh, is that there are few avenues to do that. And so it's good to have a conversation about these things, but uh, the ways that you actually go about making concrete change, unfortunately, those ways are often blocked in the Middle East. Thanks very much for joining us, Greg. Thank you. A hundred and fifty years ago, an alien species invaded rural France. These tiny yellow creatures ruined the local economy by eating their way through the old world's vineyards. But no one could figure out exactly where they came from until now. 
Phylloxera are microscopic insects like aphids, uh, pale yellow, and they eat the leaves and the roots of vines. So they're basically a winemaker's worst nightmare. Laura Spinney writes about science for The Economist. In around the 1860s, Phylloxera appeared in vineyards in the south of France and basically went on to devastate them. It's one of the worst incidences of an invasive species in history, and it was a disaster. Laura has been reporting on new genomic research that's uncovered the insect's true origin. Though we knew it came from North America, we didn't know exactly where in North America it came from or how it came to Europe in the first place. There are lots of unanswered questions about the insect that this new research addresses. And how exactly is it that they do their harm? In North America, it feeds on the leaves of wild vines and it creates these little sort of capsules called galls which allow it to feed off the vine without being detected by the plant's immune system. When it came to Europe and moved into cultivated vines, it started creating these capsules, these galls as they're known, on the roots of the plants. And that did a lot more damage because it basically made the plant vulnerable to bacteria, fungi and other microbes living in the soil, which infected it and essentially slowly killed it. Why were the effects so different in Europe than they were in America? So the idea is that in America, where the um, vine and the phylloxera kind of co-evolved, the insect has learned to live with the plant and the plant with the insect in a kind of harmonious way. When it came to Europe and it moved from the leaf to the root, it became much more of a dangerous parasite and the plant had no natural immunity and vines were dying in droves. And so what did the European vineyards do about it? The European botanists and wine experts took a little while to find out what the best solution would be, but they eventually hit upon it, which was to graft their cultivated European vines onto rootstock from North American vines. And those roots were protected against phylloxera attack. It's still the solution today for vines in Europe and other parts of the world. And so does this new research provide any roots to those kinds of solutions? What have they found? So first of all, they found that the sequence of genomes of phylloxera in Europe resemble very closely the sequences of phylloxera in certain parts of the northeastern United States, namely the upper Mississippi Valley, where the insect infects wild vines, Vitis riparia. And so they're putting together basically a more precise story of how this insect came to Europe from those parts of America, which marries up with the historical facts. And how much does pinning down where this bug originally got its start tell us about how it made its way to Europe? Historically, the leading theory was that British horticulturalists brought wild vines to Europe because they wanted to use them for decorative purposes in their orangeries and gardens. But what this suggests, if the phylloxera really did come from the upper Mississippi Valley, that was historically a French settled region. And François Delmotte, who's one of the authors of the new research, suggests that it's quite possible that phylloxera survived on cuttings of vines packed into the cool, dry holds of ships that came to Europe and infected cultivated vines that way. And there's an even greater irony, which is that some vines may have been brought from America to France to try and solve an earlier problem of an earlier invasive species from North America, which was powdery mildew. And you say that to a degree phylloxera still threatens vines all over the world. Will this finding help address that? 
It may do. So one of the other findings is that within the genome of phylloxera, there is a huge family of so-called effector genes, around 2,700 of them. And these genes allow the insect basically to manipulate the plant's physiology. That's a huge number of genes. It was once thought that there might be one single substance that allowed the insect to parasitize vines. So no such luck. But it does obviously give us a wealth of information about how the two evolve together, how the parasite does its damage in cultivated vines. There is at least the possibility that one could find ways of blocking those genes, blocking the mechanism by which the insect parasitizes the plant. Laura, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. See you back here tomorrow. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.